Section three of Lynn McLean by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two The Winning of the Biscuit Shooter Part one. It was quite clear to me that Mr. McLean could not know the news. Meeting him to-day had been unforeseen, unforeseen, and so pleasant that the thing had never come into my head until just now, after both of us had talked and dined our fill, and were torpid with satisfaction. I had found Lynn here at Riverside in the morning. At my horse's approach to the cabin, it was he and not the postmaster who had come precipitately out of the door. "'I'm terrible pleased to see you,' he said, immediately. "'What's happened?' said I, in some concern, at his appearance. And he piteously explained, "'Why, I've been here all alone since yesterday.' This was indeed all, and my hasty impressions of shooting and a corpse gave way to mirth over the child and his innocent grievance that he had blurted out before I could get off my horse. Since when, I inquired of him, had his own company become such a shock to him? As to that, replied Mr. McLean, a thought ruffled, when a man expects lonesomeness he stands it like he stands anything else, of course. But when he has figured on finding company, say, he broke off and vindictiveness sparkled in his eye, when you're lucky enough to catch yourself alone, why, I suppose you just take a chair and chat to yourself for hours. You've not seen anything of Tommy?" he pursued with interest. I had not, and forthwith Lynn poured out to me the pent-up complaints and sociability with which he was bursting. The foreman had sent him over here with a sackful of letters for the post, and to bring back the week's mail for the ranch. A day was gone now, and nothing for a man to do but sit and sit. Tommy was overdue fifteen hours. Well, you could have endured that, but the neighbors had all locked their cabins and gone to Buffalo. It was circus week in Buffalo. Had I ever considered the money there must be in the circus business? Tommy had taken the outgoing letters early yesterday. Nobody had kept him waiting. By all rules he should have been back again last night. Maybe the stage was late reaching Powder River, and Tommy had had to lay over for it. Well, that would justify him. Far more likely he had gone to the circus himself and taken the mail with him. Tommy was no type of man for postmaster. Except drawing the allowance his mother in the East gave him first of every month, he had never shown punctuality that Lynn could remember never had any second thoughts and awful few first ones told bigger lies than a small man ought also has successes though said i wickedly huh went on mr mclean successes one ice cream soda success and she lynn's still wounded male pride made him plaintive why, even that girl quit him, once she got the chance to appreciate how insignificant he was, as compared with the size of his words. No, sir, not one of em retains interest in Tommy. Lynn was unsaddling and looking after my horse just because he was glad to see me. Since our first acquaintance, that memorable summer of Pitchstone Canyon, when he had taken such good care of me and such bad care of himself, 
I had learned pretty well about horses and campcraft in general. He was an entire boy then, but he had been east since, east by a route of his own discovering, and from his account of that journey it had proved, I think, a sort of spiritual experience. And then the years of our friendship were beginning to roll up. Manhood of the body he had always richly possessed, and now, whenever we met after a season's absence and spoke those invariable words which all old friends upon this earth use to each other at meeting, you haven't changed, why, you haven't changed at all. I would wonder if manhood had arrived in Lynn's boy soul. And so to-day, while he attended to my horse and explained the nature of Tommy, a subject he dearly loved just now, I looked at him and took an intimate superior pride in feeling how much more mature I was than he, after all. There's nothing like a sense of merit for making one feel aggrieved, and on our return to the cabin Mr. McLean pointed with disgust to some firewood. Look at those sorrowful toothpicks, said he, Tommy's work. So Lynn, the excellent-hearted, had angrily busied himself, and chopped a pile of real logs that would last a week. He had also cleaned the stove, and nailed up the bed, the pillow-end of which was on the floor. It appeared the master of the house had been sleeping in it the reverse way on account of the slant. Thus had Lynn cooked and dined alone, supped alone, and sat over some old newspapers until bedtime alone, with his sense of virtue. And now, here it was long after breakfast, and no Tommy yet. "'It's good you come this afternoon,' Lynn said to me. "'I'd not have had the heart to get up another dinner just for myself. Let's eat rich.' Accordingly, we had richly eaten, Lynn and I. He had gone out among the sheds and caught some eggs. That is how he spoke of it. We had opened a number of things in cans and I had made my famous dish of evaporated apricots, in which I managed to fling a suspicion of caramel throughout the stew. "'Tommy'll be hot about these,' said Lynn joyfully, as we ate the eggs. "'He don't mind what you use of his canned goods, pickled salmon and truck. He is hospitable all right enough till it comes to an egg. Then he'll tell any lie. But shucks! You can read Tommy right through his clothing.' Make yourself at home, Lenz, as he yesterday, and he showed me his fresh milk and its stuff. Here's a new ham, says he. Too bad my damned hens ain't been layin'. The sons of guns have quit on me ever since Christmas. And away he goes to Powder River for the mail. You swore too heavy about them hens, thinks I. Well, I expect he may have traveled half a mile by the time I'd found four nests. I am fond of eggs, and eat them constantly, and in Wyoming they were always a luxury. But I never forget those that day, and how Lynn and I enjoyed them thinking of Tommy. Perhaps manhood was not quite established in my own soul at that time, and perhaps that is the reason why it is the only time I have ever known which I would live over again, those years when people said, You are old enough to know better and one didn't care. Salmon, apricots, eggs. We dealt with them all properly, and I had some cigars. 
It was now that the news came back into my head. "'What do you think of—' I began, and stopped. I spoke out of a long silence, the slack, luxurious silence of digestion. I got no answer, naturally, from the torpid Lin, and then it occurred to me that he would have asked me what I thought, long before this, had he known. So, observing how comfortable he was, I began differently. "'What is the most important event that can happen in this country?' said I. Mr. McLean heard me where he lay along the floor of the cabin on his back, dozing by the fire. But his eyes remained closed. He waggled one limp open hand slightly at me, and Torpor resumed her dominion over him. "'I want to know what you consider the most important event that can happen in this country,' said I again, enunciating each word with slow clearness. The throat and lips of Mr. McLean moved, and a sulky sound came forth that I recognized to be meant for the word war. Then he rolled over so that his face was away from me, and put an arm over his eyes. I don't mean country in the sense of United States, said I. I mean this country here, and Bear Creek, and, well, the branches southward for fifty miles, say, important to this section. Mm, mosquitoes'll be due in about three weeks, said Lin. You might leave a man rest till then. I want your opinion, said I. Oh, misery! Well, a raise in the price of steers. No. You said you wanted my opinion, said Lin. Seems like you merely figure on giving me yours. Very well, said I. Very well, then. I took up a copy of the Cheyenne Sun. It was five weeks old, and I soon perceived that I had read it three weeks ago. But I read it again for some minutes now. I expect a railroad would be more important, said Mr. McLean, persuasively, from the floor. Than a rise in steers, said I, occupied with the Cheyenne Sun. Oh, yes, a railroad certainly would. It's got to be money anyhow, stated Lynn, thoroughly wakened. Money in some shape. How little you understand the real wants of the country, said I, coming to the point. It's a girl. Mr. McLean lay quite still on the floor. A girl, I repeated. A new girl coming to this starved country. The cowpuncher took a long, gradual stretch and began to smile. Well, said he, you caught me, if that's much to do when a man is half-witted with dinner in sleep. He closed his eyes again and lay with a specious expression of indifference. But that sort of thing is a solitary entertainment and Paul's. Starved he presently muttered. We are kind of starved that way, I'll admit. More dollars than girls to the square mile. And to think of all of us nice, healthy, young— Betcha I know who she is, he triumphantly cried. He had sat up and leveled a finger at me with the throw-down jerk of a marksman. Sydney, Nebraska. I nodded. This was not the lady's name. He could not recall her name but his geography of her was accurate. One day in February my friend Mrs. Taylor over on Bear Creek had received a letter, no common event for her. 
Therefore, during several days, she had all callers read it just as naturally as she had them all see the new baby, and baby and letter had both been brought out for me. The letter was signed, Ever your affectionate friend, Katie Peck, and was not easy to read here and there. But you could piece out the drift of it, and there was Mrs. Taylor by your side, eager to help you when you stumbled. Miss Peck wrote that she was overworked in Sydney, Nebraska, and needed a holiday. When the weather grew warm, she would like to come to Bear Creek and be like old times. Like to come and be like old times, filled Mrs. Taylor with sentiment and the cowpunchers with expectation. But it was a long way from February to warm weather on Bear Creek, and even cowpunchers will forget about a new girl if she does not come. For several weeks I had not heard Miss Peck mentioned, and old girls had to do. Yesterday, however, when I paid a visit to Miss Molly Wood, the Bear Creek schoolmistress, I found her keeping in order the cabin and the children of the Taylors while they were gone forty-five miles to the stage station to meet their guest. "'Well,' said Lynn judicially, "'Miss Wood is a lady.' Yes, said I, with deep gravity, for I was thinking of an occasion when Mr. McLean had discovered that truth somewhat abruptly. Lynn thoughtfully continued, She is, um, she's, uh, she's, what are you laughing at? Oh, nothing. You don't see quite so much of Miss Wood as you used to, do you? Huh, so that's got around. Well, of course, I'd ought to have knowed better, I suppose. All the same, there's lots and lots of girls do like getting kissed against their wishes, and you know it. But the point would rather seem to be that she would rather seem. Don't you start that professor style of yours, or I'll, I'll talk more wickedness in worse language than ever you've heard me do yet. Impossible, I murmured sweetly and Master Lynn went on. As to point, that don't need to be explained to me. She's a lady, all right. He ruminated for a moment. She has about scared all the boys off, though, he continued, and that's what you get by being refined, he concluded, as if Providence had at length spoken in this matter. She has not scared off a boy from Virginia, I notice, said I. He was there yesterday afternoon again ridden all the way over from Sunk Creek. Didn't seem particularly frightened. Oh, well, nothing alarms him, not even refinement, said Mr. McLean, with his grin. And she'll fool your Virginian like she done the balance of us. You wait. Shucks, if all the girls were that chilly, why, what would us poor punchers do? You have me cornered, said I, and we sat in a philosophical silence, Lynn on the floor still, and I at the window. There I looked out upon a scene my eyes never tired of then, nor can my memory now. Spring had passed over it with its first lightest steps. The pastured levels undulated in emerald. Through the many-changing sage that just this moment of to-day was lilac shone greens scarce a week old in the dimples of the foothills and greens new-born beneath to-day's sun melted among them. 
Around the doubling of the creek in the willow thickets glimmered skeined veils of yellow and delicate crimson. The stream poured turbulently away from the snows of the mountains behind us. It went winding in many folds across the meadows into distance and smallness, and so vanished round the great red battlement of wall beyond. Upon this were falling the deep hues of afternoon, violet, rose, and saffron, swimming and meeting as if some prism had dissolved and flowed over the turrets and crevices of the sandstone. Far over there I saw a dot move. At last, said I. Lynn looked out of the window. It's more than Tommy, said he at once, and his eyes made it out before mine could. It's a wagon. That's Tommy's bald-faced horse alongside. He's foolin' to the finish, Lynn severely commented, as if, after all this delay, there should at least be a home stretch. Presently, however, a home stretch seemed likely to occur. The bald-faced horse executed some lively maneuvers, and Tommy's voice reached us faintly through the light spring air. He was evidently howling the remarkable strain of yells that the cowpunchers invented as the speech best understood by cows. But that gives you no idea of it. Alphabets are worse than photographs. It is not the lungs of every man that can produce these effects, nor even from armies, eagles, or mules were such sounds ever heard on earth. The cowpuncher invented them, and when the last cowpuncher is laid to rest, if that, alas, have not already befallen, the yells will be forever gone. Singularly enough, the cattle appeared to appreciate them. Tommy always did them very badly, and that was plain even at this distance. Nor did he give us a home stretch, after all. The bald-faced horse made a number of evolutions and returned beside the wagon. "'Showin' off,' remarked Lynn. "'Tommy's showin' off.' Suspicion crossed his face, and then certainty. "'Why, we might a knowed that,' he exclaimed in dudgeon. "'It's her!' He hastened outside for a better look, and I came to the door myself. "'That's what it is,' said he. "'It's the girl.' "'Oh, yes.' That's Taylor's buckskin pair he traded Balaam for. She come by the stage all right yesterday, you see, but she had been too tired to travel, you see, or else, maybe, Taylor wanted to rest his buckskins. They're four-year-olds. Or else, anyway, they laid over last night at Powder River, and Tommy, he has just laid over too, you see, holdin' the mail back on us twenty-four hours, and that's your postmaster." It was our postmaster, and this he had done, quite as the virtuously indignant McLean surmised. Had I taken the same interest in the new girl, I suppose that I, too, should have felt virtuously indignant. Lynn and I stood outside to receive the travelers. As their cavalcade drew near, Mr. McLean grew silent and watchful, his whole attention focused upon the tailor's vehicle. Its approach was joyous. Its gear made a cheerful clanking. Taylor cracked his whip and encouragingly chirruped to the buckskins, and Tommy's apparatus jingled musically. For Tommy wore upon himself and his saddle 
all the things you can wear in the Wild West. Except that his hair was not long, our postmaster might have conducted a show and minted gold by exhibiting his romantic person before the eyes of princes. He began with a black-and-yellow rattlesnake skin for a hat-band, he continued with a fringed and beaded shirt of buckskin, and concluded with large tinkling spurs. Of course, there were things between his shirt and his heels, but all leather and deadly weapons. He had also a riata, a cuerta, and tapaderos, and frequently employed these Spanish names for the objects. I wish that I had not lost Tommy's photograph in Rocky Mountain costume. You must understand that he was really pretty, with blue eyes, ruddy cheeks, and a graceful figure. And besides, he had twenty-four hours start of poor Dusty Lynn, whose best clothes were elsewhere. You might have supposed that it would be Mrs. Taylor who should present us to her friend from Sydney, Nebraska, but Tommy on his horse undertook the office before the wagon had well come to a standstill. "'Good friends of mine and gentlemen both,' said he to Miss Peck, and to us, "'a lady whose acquaintance will prove a treat to our section.' We all bowed at each other beneath the florid expanse of these recommendations, and I was proceeding to murmur something about its being a long journey and a fine day, when Miss Peck cut me short, gaily. "'Well!' she exclaimed to Tommy. I guess I'm pretty near ready for them eggs you spoke so much about." I have not often seen Mr. McLean lose his presence of mind. He needed merely to exclaim, "'Why, Tommy, you told me your hens had not been laying since Christmas!' And we could have sat quiet and let Tommy try to find all the eggs that he could. But the new girl was a sore embarrassment to the cowpuncher's wits. Poor Lynn stood by the wheels of the wagon. He looked up at Miss Peck. He looked over at Tommy. His features assumed a rueful expression, and he wretchedly blurted, "'Why, Tommy, I've been and eat em.' "'Well, if that ain't!' cried Miss Peck. She stared with interest at Lynn as he now assisted her to descend. "'All?' faltered Tommy. "'Not the four nests?' I've had three meals, you know," Lynn reminded him deprecatingly. I helped him, said I, ten innocent fresh eggs. But we have left some ham. Forgive us, please. I declare, said Miss Peck abruptly, and rolled her sluggish, inviting eyes upon me, you're a case too, I expect. But she took only brief note of me, although it was from head to foot. In her stare, the dull shine of familiarity grew vacant, and she turned back to Lynn McLean. "'You carry that,' said she, and gave the pleased cowpuncher a hand valise. "'I'll look after your things, Miss Peck,' called Tommy, now springing down from his horse. The egg tragedy had momentarily stunned him. "'You'll attend to the mail first, Mr. Postmaster,' said the lady, but favoring him with a look from her large eyes. There's plenty of gentlemen here." With that her glance favored Lynn. She went into the cabin, he followed her close, with the tailors and myself in the rear. 
"'Well, I guess I'm about collapsed,' said she vigorously, and sank upon one of Tommy's chairs. The fragile article fell into sticks beneath her, and Lynn leaped to her assistance. He placed her upon a firmer foundation. Mrs. Taylor brought a basin and towel to bathe the dust from her face, Mr. Taylor produced whiskey, and I found sugar and hot water. Tommy would doubtless have done something in the way of assistance or restoratives, but he was gone to the stable with the horses. "'Shall I get your medicine from the valise, dearie?' inquired Mrs. Taylor. "'Not now,' her visitor answered, and I wondered why she should take such a quick look at me. "'We'll soon have ye independent of medicine,' said Lynn gallantly. "'Our climate and scenery here has frequently raised the dead.' "'You're a case, anyway,' exclaimed the sick lady, with rich conviction. The cowpuncher now sat himself on the edge of Tommy's bed, and, throwing one leg across the other, began to raise her spirits with cheerful talk. She steadily watched him, his face sometimes, sometimes his lounging masculine figure. While he thus devoted his attentions to her, Taylor departed to help Tommy at the stable, and good Mrs. Taylor, busy with supper for all of us in the kitchen, expressed her joy at having her old friend of childhood for a visit after so many years. "'Sickness has changed poor Katie some,' said she, "'but I'm hoping she'll get back her looks on Bear Creek.' "'She seems less feeble than I had understood,' I remarked. "'Yes, indeed, I do believe she's feeling stronger. She was that tired and down yesterday.' with the long stage-ride, and it is so lonesome. But Taylor and I heartened her up, and Tommy came with the mail, and to-day she's real spruced up, like feeling she's among friends. How long will she stay? I inquired. Just as long as ever she wants. Me and Katie hasn't met since we was young girls in Dubuque, for I left home when I married Taylor, and he brought me to this country right soon. And it ain't been much like Dubuque much, though if I had to do it over again, I'd do just the same, as Taylor knows. Katie and me hasn't wrote even, not till this February, for you always mean to, and you don't. Well, it'll be like old times. Katie'll be most thirty-four, I expect. Yes, I was seventeen, and she was sixteen the very month I was married. Poor thing! She ought to have got some good man for a husband, but I expect she didn't have any chance, for there was a big family of them girls, and old Peck used to act real scandalous, getting drunk so folks didn't visit there evenings scarcely at all. And so she quit home, it seems, and got a position in the railroad eating house at Sydney, and now she has poor health, with feeding them big trains day and night. "'A biscuit-shooter?' said I. Loyal Mrs. Taylor stirred some batter in silence. "'Well,' said she then, "'I'm told that's what the yard-hands of the railroad call them poor waiter-girls. You might hear it around the switches at them division stations.' I had heard it in higher places also, but meekly accepted the reproof. "'If you have made your trans-Missouri journeys only since the new era of dining-cars,' There is a quantity of things you have come too late for, and will never know. 
Three times a day in the brave days of old you sprang from your scarce halted car at the summons of a gong. You discerned by instinct the right direction, and passing steadily through doorways, had taken, before you knew it, one of some sixty chairs in a room of tables and ketchup bottles. Behind the chairs, standing attention, a platoon of Amazons, thick-wristed, pink and blue, began immediately a swift chant. It hymned the total bill of fare at a blow. In this inexpressible ceremony the name of every dish went hurtling into the next, telescoped to shapelessness. Moreover, if you stopped your Amazon in the middle, it dislocated her, and she merely went back and took a fresh start. The chant was always the same, but you never learned it. As soon as it began, your mind snapped shut like the upper berth in a Pullman. You must have uttered appropriate words, even a parrot will. For next you were eating things, pie, ham, hot cakes, as fast as you could. Twenty minutes of swallowing, and all aboard for Ogden, with your pile-driven stomach dumb with amazement. The Strasburg goose is not dieted with greater velocity, and biscuit-shooter is a grand word. Very likely some homer of the railroad yards first said it, for what men upon the present earth so speak with imagination's tongue as we Americans? If Miss Peck had been a biscuit-shooter, I could account readily for her conversation, her equipped deportment, the maturity in her round blue marble eye. Her abrupt laugh, something beyond gay, was now sounding in response to Mr. McLean's lively sallies, and I found him fanning her into convalescence with his hat. She herself made but few remarks, but allowed the cowpuncher to entertain her, merely exclaiming briefly now and then, I declare, and if you ain't. Lynn was most certainly engaging, if that was the lady's meaning. His wide-open eyes sparkled upon her, and he half closed them now and then to look at her more effectively. I suppose she was worth it to him. I have forgotten to say that she was handsome in a large California fruit style. They made a good-looking pair of animals. But it was in the presence of Tommy that Master Lynn shone more energetically than ever, and under such shining Tommy was transparently restless. He tried, and failed, to bring the conversation his way, and took to rearranging the mail and the furniture. "'Supper's ready,' he said at length. "'Come right in, Miss Peck, right in here. This is your seat. This one, please. Now you can see my fields out the window.' "'You sit here,' said the biscuit-shooter to Len, and thus she was between them. "'Them's elegant,' she presently exclaimed to Tommy. Did you cook em? I explained that the apricots were of my preparation. Indeed, said she, and turned to Tommy, who had been telling her of his ranch, his potatoes, his horses. And do you punch cattle, too? she inquired of him. Me, said Tommy slightingly, gave it up years ago. Too empty a life for me. I leave that to such as like it. When a man owns his own property—Tommy swept his hand at the whole landscape—he 
He takes to more intellectual work." "Lickin' postage stamps?" Mr. McLean suggested, sourly. "You lick 'em and I cancel 'em," answered the postmaster, and it does not seem a powerful rejoinder. But Miss Peck uttered her laugh. "That's one on you," she said to Lin. And throughout this meal it was Tommy who had her favor. She partook of his generous supplies. She listened to his romantic inventions, the trails he had discovered, the bears he had slain, and after supper it was with Tommy, and not with Lin, that she went for a little walk. "'Katie was ever a tease,' said Mrs. Taylor, of her childhood friend, and Mr. Taylor observed that there was always safety in numbers. "'She'll get used to the ways of this country quicker than our little schoolmarm,' said he. Mr. McLean said very little, but read the new-arrived papers. It was only when bedtime dispersed us, the ladies in the cabin and the men choosing various spots outside, that he became talkative again for a while. We lay in the blankets we had spread on some soft dry sand in preference to the stable, where Taylor and Tommy had gone. Under the contemplative influence of the stars, Lin fell into generalization. "'Ever noticed,' said he, "'how whiskey and lion act the same on a man?' I did not feel sure that I had. "'Just the same. You keep either of em up long enough, and you've got to require it. If Tommy didn't lie some every day, he'd get sick.' I was sleepy, but I murmured assent to this, and trusted he would not go on. "'Ever notice,' said he, how the victims of the whiskey and lion habit get to increase in the dose? Yes, said I. Him roping six bears, pursued Mr. McLean, after further contemplation, or any bear. Ever notice how the worser a man's lion, the silenter other men'll get? Why's that now? I believe that I made a faint sound to imply that I was following him. Men don't get took in. But ladies now, they— Here he paused again, and during the next interval of contemplation I sank beyond his reach. End of chapter 2, part 1